0: and welcome to the
1: podcast. I'm Sonia Thomas. I'm Sarah Jordan.
2: And I'm Gavin Cooper.
1: Welcome to the next COVID update. Today we talked to Elaine Thorpe, our critical care matron. We talked to her about the organisation of an ITU unit through a pandemic, how challenging it can be, organising staffing, making sure that there's enough training for those non-trained ITU staff, and also dealing with how difficult it is to look after patients with all of the PPE and then the after-effects. Of working in such environments
0: so I guess we just start off with you letting us know a bit about yourself where you trained and how long you've been doing this area of nursing right.
1: okay so um, I trained I am Scottish in case you didn't know and I trained in Dundee in Scotland and as soon as I qualified I moved out to London so that's in 1995 I think And I started off in acute medicine at Guy's Hospital, but really knew that I wanted to go to intensive care, even though I'd never done it in my training. I wanted to see what that was like. And so I went to um, intensive care at Guy's. Didn't really like it, to be honest. I wasn't sure if it was for me. So that's when I decided it was a lifelong dream to do it. So let me try another intensive care unit. So that's what I did. So I moved to the Middlesex, which is obviously knocked down now. And been at UCLH Trust ever since, really, in intensive care. I've done a couple of things in between then. So I went to be the the matron for AMU and critical care at the same time for about six months. So that was really good. And then last year, around about this time, actually. Yeah, you went away and, for six yeah, months. Yeah, I went you? to the Lister Hospital in Stevenage to be the head of nursing for surgery, which was um, very different, but... Um, Even though it was wards, and I was a little bit nervous of the wards because that's not not my normal area, and critical care and theatre, so it's a really big patch. Um, But it's the same principles that kind of apply in leadership and all the stuff, you know. So that was really, really good for me, Um, and I did really enjoy it, but then I decided I would come back to UCLH in um, January. I did miss it. For about six weeks, actually, I, I didn't do critical care. Well, I did projects within critical care, And I went back into my matron's job the very first Monday in March. And that's when the letters came from Italy saying you need to start preparing now. So day one back in matron job and day one it was COVID from then on in.
0: We kind of knew it was coming. How did you yourself try and organise in your mind really? Where to even start with? I mean, how
1: many nurses do you
0: have in ITU?
1: So currently, we've got about 220 full time equivalents. That's probably about 250 nurses. Yeah. And and we carried on recruiting through COVID, so we didn't actually realise we'd recruited so many nurses during it. Yeah. <laughs> the team did amazing. So a big, big workforce. Like all specialties, you have your bodies who you really believe and you refer to them. So we had the Intensive Care Society and there's the European Intensive Care Society, and one of their Italian colleagues wrote a letter to the European Intensive Care Society. And and that for me was the, the, the defining moment. And that was very, very early on. It was probably on the Tuesday or the Wednesday after I started back as the matron job. And I just, well, there was about 10 different points that he said you must do, but one of them was prepare now. Mm. And I didn't really want to believe it, but I kind of mm. really, really did take that so seriously. But not only did I, is that you know, got a great multidisciplinary team, and one of the consultants was appointed as a tactical lead, and we just got on and did it. And the conversations with theatres and everywhere was just two weeks of really, really intensive preparation before we started to see the admissions coming through, and it, it varies from everything that how we would expand into theatres because we knew that was going to the expansion area to how we would care for patients in PPE, to start training all our staff in PPE. We ran simulations on how to prone patients, how the doctors would intubate patients. We knew we wouldn't have enough nurses, so we planned on how on earth are we going to do this? What does the nursing model look like? There was guidance coming out, but I think we'd already started to really think about what that might look like and how we would um, do that. You really just try to think about everything that we possibly could and trying to get people outside of critical care to say this is really going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> Even, in, I still think, in my mind, I kind of had this um, just hope that it wasn't going to be us. But we've got some very clever doctors who were able to pinpoint how many admissions we'd have each day over a period of time, and they weren't far wrong, actually.
0: And what do you normally run at in your... ICU? How many beds is the normal?
1: Yeah, so so I'm the matron for UCH, which is 35 beds, and also Westmoreland Street, which is nine beds, and that's surgical. And the staff that went to Westmoreland Street were staff that were higher risk, that couldn't be around COVID patients, so they kind of had their own little cohort that worked over there.
2: So were they dealing with cancer surgeries?
1: cancer surgery so thoracic surgery urology surgery and then eventually gynae and GI moved over there as well so
2: it was like um, a clean site essentially clean site yes
1: they frequently tested patients we thought might be COVID but we never had one positive COVID patient on the ICU there so that was really reassuring for our nurses that were pregnant and stuff that they could be over there and we then planned for our 35 beds at UCH plus expanding in the whole of theatres recovery paediatric recovery the block room so a massive expansion that would take us up to I think about 86 beds in total if we needed it to
0: and what was the peak for you for us
1: I think so I think on the busiest day it was about 62 so we had expanded into some of the operating theatres and that was you know just surreal but I guess UCH was a little bit well would I say unique I probably would because other centres would have intubated patients and put them on the ventilator much earlier than we would have we um, had the CPAP ward on T7 so you know they were critically unwell patients being looked after by the PERT team and our nurse consultant and the ward nurses that were deployed to there but in other hospitals they didn't do CPAPs so these patients would have been intubated as well and I think they had it 22 at the most so you know so we did have over 80 critical care covid patients and then and um, queen square had about 12 as well so uch had about 100 It, you know at, at the peak so big big numbers yes
0: so obviously you in icu you have a nurse to a patient and you're doubling your amount of patients when did you feel that you really had to pull on other areas and specialties to come in
1: yes so when the letter came from Italy. I did send a few emails out to um, the deputy chief nurse saying, saying mm, this is happening. And I think I went and hunted one of them down because my particular one was on annual leave saying, I, I think well, we need to start planning for this now. So we knew that we couldn't do it ourselves. And very early on, we raised that to the organisation. And that piece of work did happen. But, you know, we, we've learned that we could do something better next time if there's a next time. But we'd already started to map out. So it it came out from, I'm not sure if it was NHS England or Ruth May's team, but they talked about one to six, one ICU nurse to six patients supported by ward nurses or helpers, wherever. You know, that was pretty horrific at the thought of that. And of course... You can only be in PPE for two hours. So actually if even though you had two ICU nurses allocated to a five bedded area, there would only be one ICU nurse in there at a time. So that would be one to five supported with other helpers. So it was just really thinking about that and making sure that the right people were, you know, with experience were in each area, but there's no doubt about it. It it was horrific. It was, you know, really, really tough. But one of the things I did do really, really early is that I made this very transparent with the team. This is going to look very different for us and it could be as bad as one to five or one to six. So most of the staff were really, really appraised of that. They were aware of what that might look like, but just making sure that there was as much support as as we could possibly give. So... For instance, I spent a lot of my time in PPE, but I only did it round in recovery. In the beginning, I'd go into the bays and assist and help out. But actually, the staff were familiar with that area. Where they really needed help was round in recovery. It it was the toughest in these areas. So that's where I used to spend a lot of my time supporting the nurses. And you you could just see in their eyes that they needed to, to get out because it was so noisy, so busy patients were so sick and that was the toughest area so really started to think about the areas that we weren't used to and put more more resources into these areas
0: mm. i think when i when i realized it was going to get bad was only i think i was interviewing and my deputy chief nurse came and found me and said i, I see you need nurses and that was when i really thought right okay now it's got to that point where we just have to do that. And the nurses were absolutely incredible. Um, actually, I, was, I had emails from nurses disappointed that they weren't going. <laughs> that was how it, what,
1: everybody wanted to help.
0: And it yeah. was like, oh, I'll go,
1: I'll go to ITU, or I'll go to ITU. The haematology nurses and the Great Ormond Street nurses, I guess because you were such a big group, and the Great Ormond Street nurses were a big group as well, that they were uh, very appreciated. And I guess because you've got that acute care around you as well, like, that really helped yeah, and we couldn't have done it without all the helpers. I mean, it would have been impossible to do. And, you know, it's what it's what we do now to support people retrospectively with learning, and, and that's the bit of work that we're really doing now. And we hope that people that came to help really got something out of it in some way as well, other than feeling like you really made a difference because you did. I mean, I obviously don't teach as much as I used to do. One particular day in recovery, and I, th- I was teaching two of the, the nurses how to take blood gases and they were almost fighting over who could do it next. But it was so lovely for me to go back into that teaching role again and, you know, just talk through how to do something. And so, you know, there are such um, some really nice memories that
2: I have as well of that time. Did you have any sort of contingency plans where you've ever worked in that style before?
1: Uh, like oh, yeah, style? no, all completely brand new. You know, it's usually critical care that would lend nurses out to for for instance AE for a few months so that they could get through their winter surges. But generally we use quite self sufficient. I do think very quickly we could see that nurse to patient ratios on critical care are there for a reason. And you know, these patients that we saw during COVID, a lot of them would have had two nurses by the bedside looking after them because they were so so sick, weren't they? And you know we pride ourselves at giving a really high quality experience for patients and their loved ones, and our staff hopefully. Um, and one of these things is the staffing. So we we know that we we need to needs to be better. I mean, I'm sure you remember there was a lot of people in the room at handover. It wasn't very well organised, and that's nobody's fault. But one of the after action reviews we're doing is to what. How could, we, how could we do it differently with the support of the organisation for next time? The way that, you know, we, all the patients were prone, and that was one of the things that really upset myself and, and everybody, really, that the patients were just faceless. Every one of them was lying down. Lots of them got really sore faces. So now we've got some really good guidelines from the Shelford group. And so that's what we would do going forward that would help next time. The way to do it now is to really listen and look at the learning and change. And the changes won't just affect if there is another pandemic. This the Patients will get better care now if they're prone to just as part of, as a normal intensive care patient in non-COVID times. But that for me is what I'm really trying to focus on just now is, you know, during that eight-week period, what didn't go so well? Because we know the teamwork was amazing and, yeah, and everything incredible. like that. I mean
2: to have the team expand like that and work under such yeah. incredibly difficult circumstances yeah. and the morale was just yeah. right up there.
1: And we, you know, one of the things that many nurses came and cried to me about was because they couldn't do their very best. They, they were focused on keeping the patients alive, which is, of course, the right thing to do. But they just didn't have time to do eye care or mouth care or, you know, and they, they found that the hardest. Um, I think one of them described it, and it doesn't make me laugh because I know people think this of intensive care nurses. But she she described her said, herself herself as OCD when it comes to doing the right thing for the patient in very detail. And she said she had to let go of that. There's just no option, and that was really really hard for her. And she's still coming to terms with that now, as are many of the nurses. You know, they they just that you weren't able to do what you would normally do for a patient is really really tough. And I think that's why the learning's so important now. So we might not get it right next time, but we'll get it better, I think. And we'd hope to get it right. But in such extraordinary circumstances, I think the team did amazing. You know, when I say the team, I mean everybody who came to be part of it did such an amazing job.
2: It's horrible to think having to plan for a second wave. Mm. Do you th- I mean, is that something that is kind of well advanced than now?
1: Yeah, so I... I think about that an awful lot. And I think, could it ever be as bad as that again? So even if we had the number of patients, if the R level just started to climb and we were in that situation, I don't think it would ever be as bad because we know what we're facing. But it is really concerning. None of us ever want to go through that again. And I think I just see such a rollercoaster of emotions in the nurses. And the. obviously I talk to more nurses about their personal feelings than I do the MTT, but I do know... Doctors and you know our admin staff are all suffering too. But everybody's gone through this roller coaster of emotions of, you know, being really, really distraught, unable to hold conversations together, to being really flat and just having no energy to do anything. And I guess it is a grieving process, isn't it? We're we're all going through this, and for a sudden surge to happen again so quickly when you've really kind of come to terms would just be. Gosh, I couldn't, you know, just devastating for everybody. And I think one of the, the biggest things that I try and say to my staff is that it's absolutely okay not to be okay. And what you're feeling is what I'm feeling. It's what I've just talked to the person 10 minutes ago. So, you know, don't ever feel that you're on your own. But I, I gosh, I just couldn't imagine it to be as bad as it was. But then I didn't ever think what happened would happen. So I've kind of been a little bit cautious about it. We just don't know.
2: Yeah. yeah sorry <laughs> no, it's yeah, a real sorry. kind of like a yeah, low yeah, point where you're thinking yeah, yeah no, yeah, no, I really
1: no it is yeah. it is and you know I think the emotions that we all go through is it's you know it's I, I, I'm on a, 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 a where I am just now is feeling really flat and I'm trying to get my motivations together to to um, have energy to be ready for all the expansions and lead your team but you you can't sometimes you know you've just got to accept this isn't a good day it's going to end at uh, midnight tonight and I'll wake up tomorrow if I've slept. <laughs> um, but I, I you know talking to one of the consultants today he hasn't had a good night's sleep since before this began he just you know can't sleep and it's it's most the bizarre thing ever. But I guess the really good thing is that people are talking about it and they're not they're not holding it into themselves and that's so important.
2: I think from the thing that I found, like, really difficult, as you said, with working in intensive care was, you know, it was so busy You were kind of rushed around between lots of different patients rather than having, you know, one or two to look after. Mm-hmm. They're possibly prone, but then also not having that yeah. family interaction yeah. as well. Yeah. So it was kind of like one of the best bits for me, but also kind of worst was seeing patients having communication over an iPad. Do
1: you know, in the, in the beginning when no families were allowed... And you couldn't, I used to feel really guilty because I never even gave the family thought on some days because it was so busy, you were just trying to do your best for what the situation, um, what was unfolding um, in front of you. And then we got the family liaison team, I can't remember, quite quickly. And they were made up of the dentists and organ donation nurse and surgeons and stuff. And that's still running. Okay. So, um, and, and like you said, you know, I'll never forget a day where I walked up to um, a patient I'd just gone into the area and the iPad was there and there was a I don't know she must have been about 14 years old crying down the iPad to her granddad telling him to wake up you know y- y- there are no words to describe how awful that is but it was one of the only ways that the family could communicate with their loved one it didn't look Good, but actually, it was what the family wanted, and they so appreciated that they could see their granddad or their dad. But the families on Team Now, we we're, we're trying to make this the way forward, you know. So a different way of communicating with families, and you know, it was then reassuring for us that every family would get a call every single day to give them an update of what was going on. And you know, it's not how we would want it to be, but it's. It, it it worked and then you know they would do face to face um over the ipad with the doctors sometimes so you know i kind of felt that the families were engaged in that way and you had the the dentists and the team really being the advocate for the family and the patient and i think you we were right to i mean i know some hospitals were a blanket not letting anybody visit which in some situations that just wasn't right you know they did we did allow family members in, you know, if it was before the patient was deteriorating, going on to ventilator, just to have one last conversation with them. So I, I don't think you should make blanket rules about things like that. I think you have to take it very much in a case-by-case basis, and, I, and that was the right thing. And it's still the right thing now, so it's not that nobody gets to visit. It's important. Yeah.
2: To what extent are things kind of returning to the way you remember the unit uh, before covid
1: Yeah, so it's um dare i say it (laughs) well
2: we have we have (laughs) yeah so we
1: did yes so we didn't have um we've got very few covid patients now but this is this is the bit of time now that they need that bit of downtime. but also this is the time that we're using to do all the learning we had about 30 of between 30 and 40 staff start during that period and they never got the education and the learning that they needed. So we're running all their courses again for them. And so it's about putting, you know, the, the emphasis back into these guys who didn't get what we would normally. I mean, how awful must it have been to start an intensive care like this? But yeah, people just need a bit of downtime and that's what they've got at the moment. And are they important.
0: a lot of staff now taking their annual leave, having a break?
1: yeah so we um yeah so lots of people kindly cancelled their annual leave yeah so it's now encouraging them to take their annual leave and have some downtime. you know it's very hard and I I know that I'm not the only one that feels it but because you were so attached to your team and you I needed to be at work I found when I was at home I just wanted to be at work with the team when it was all going on and it's not because they need me, but that's where your priorities for that period of time really was. You just wanted to to be there with the team and and support them. And being at home was really difficult. And I stayed in um, twice a week at the little hotel across the way, so I wasn't that far away either. But it's uh, you know, it's just I guess you're in it together, aren't you? It's so emotional.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Do you, have you had your time off? Have you run I've had some time
1: off, but I haven't been able to switch off. There's no. a difference, isn't there? Mm. <laughs> there is. Yeah. There's time off and switching off. Yeah. Shine and out. are they? Um,
0: are you organising for the nurses now, post? Um, have you got like?
1: Yeah. So every twice a week. So yeah. every Tuesday, Wednesday, Tuesday and Thursday, our um, psychologist does reflective rounds, and they're really, really good. The staff are finding them really beneficial. That's great. Just to talk through stuff. And thank you to Team Hematology because you're amazing.